Welcome to Scientific American Science Talk, posted on January 29th, 2018. I'm Steve Mursky. On this episode... Imagine a kite that's like a, a thin strip of, of fabric. It has piezoelectric components into, in it. It generates 10x the amount of energy that a windmill does. You can transport it. You can't transport a windmill. Transport it to a disaster relief site and generate energy. That's Rosemary Truman. She's founder and CEO of the Center for Advancing Innovation. And she was part of a recent discussion titled Energy Solutions for a Sustainable Future that took place at the Rayburn Building on Capitol Hill. Scientific American, represented by our editor-in-chief, Maria Cristina, sponsored the conversation, along with Congressman Jerry McNerney from California. It was the first in a planned series of events called Science Meets Congress. Other panelists were Francis Martin O'Sullivan, Director of Research for MIT's Energy Institute, and Eric Rolfing, Acting Director of ARPA-E, that's the Advanced Research Projects Agency, Energy. The audience consisted of journalists, members of Congress, and congressional staffers. What follows is an edited version of the audio from the panel hosted by Maria Cristina. Hi, I'm Mariette Cristina. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Scientific American, and I hope you're here for a discussion around energy solutions for a sustainable future. Before we begin with that discussion, I would love to introduce Representative Jerry McNearney, who uh, I'm just delighted can join us today to get us started. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. As we know, there's some big challenges with regard to the energy future of our country and our world. Uh, we have climate change. Uh, we have the resiliency issue. We have the cost. We want to make sure energy is cost competitive so that we can continue to grow our economies. And a little problem here in the United States, uh, partisanship is sort of a, a kind of uh, a little bit of an impedance. But if we work hard, we can get through those things. I just want to tell you a little bit about my background. I'm one of two uh, PhD scientists in Congress. I have a math degree uh, in differential geometry. Um, I spent 25 years in industry creating wind energy technology, which was a lot of fun. Uh, and then I came here to Congress uh, back in 2007. Um, the good news is, and there's plenty of really good news in this field, uh, is that the technology is out there. It's coming down in cost. It's becoming more reliable. Uh, right now we see that renewables and natural gas together meet about half of our national energy needs, which means we're reducing carbon emissions. Also, we see the states, the individual states, enacting policies that uh, encourage renewable energy and, and clean energy technology. The challenges that we have in the electoral system, we have outages. Uh, we saw what happened in Puerto Rico when it got hit with that storm. We saw uh, California, we got uh, wildfires that took out significant portions of our grid. So we need to make our grid more resilient. And we do that by uh, becoming more distributed in energy sources. Again, renewables are perfect for that. Storage is gonna help that a lot. So we see uh, real opportunities out there Another challenge we have uh, at a national level is finding the national will to move forward uh, strongly enough to meet the challenge that we have. Uh, we, need, we need resources, we need policies, uh, and we're not quite there getting those things yet. Again, the states are doing a great job. We need to show that kind of leadership here in Washington. Uh, we have challenges, we have opportunities, we have things moving in the right direction, uh, and I hope that this forum uh, continues to, uh, to help uh, move us in that direction. Francis Martin O'Sullivan, Director of Research for MIT's Energy Institute, spoke next. Um, you know, just to frame this, I'd actually like to, I think, um, 
resonate with some of the comments that Representative McNeary has just made. We are certainly in the midst of a profound period of change in our energy system. I characterize it really as once in a century transition, actually. Um, and that's particularly centered today in, in electricity and in the convergence of things like the electricity system with things like mobility. Um, and there are three salient trends that are driving that. Uh, the first is undoubtedly decarbonization, uh, potentially a, you know, a controversial topic uh, in this part of the world. But let me be very clear. Um, decarbonization is happening uh, in some instances because of policy. But we are now entering into a new phase for decarbonization, one where uh, the pure economics of decarbonization make more sense. So we're seeing technologies like wind and solar photovoltaics um, becoming increasingly the technology of choice for adding new capacity to our system here in the United States. Last year, uh, about 60% of all of our new capacity additions was in that form. Um, and, and that's going to accelerate going forward. Uh, and that's, of course, taking place here and around the world. So that's one very important trend. Um, the second important trend is decentralization. So we have had a system uh, for a century which is at a particular structure that has leveraged the tremendous economies of scale that have flowed from the type of uh, large-scale thermal facilities we've used to generate uh, power, long transmission, high-voltage transmission, and so on. Over the past uh, decade, with the help of agencies like RPE, I should add, uh, you know, we have opened up an entirely new set of tools, a broader toolbox, uh, to enable the, the so-called distributed energy resource paradigm. And these technologies, some of them are generation technologies like solar photovoltaics. Uh, others are more broader tools like storage. They are really enabling us to think very differently about how we provide our energy services. Um, they are going to help reshape uh, the delivery of electricity in this country. They're going to help with the uh, electrification of many other parts of the world where today they're underserved or not served. And, um, and we have to embrace that opportunity as well. And I will add, these are also tools that we are going to lever to deliver greater resiliency and reliability to our system. So that's really very, very important. Um, the third uh, trend, which is more, more generic than simply in the electricity sector, is, of course, digitization. So things like decarbonization and particularly decentralization, these are exciting uh, movements and having the technologies to deliver them is great. But the real value can only be realized through the application of digitization. So we have to think about a more dynamic grid going forward, one that's going to be much more spatially and temporally resolved. And we're going to use uh, digital uh, infrastructure to enable that. So we're going to have the right solution deployed at the right point on the grid to deliver the most cost-effective energy service, the most reliable and the most resilient energy service. Um, and I think those are, uh, you know, that combined do, does really represent a, a profound change. Now, there are a few other points that I want to add to this that are, that are also important. Uh, electrification, either in pure battery EVs or heavy hybridization, is going to happen. It's going to be cost-effective. It's going to be a sensible solution. And we have to think very carefully about how we take advantage of that, of course. Uh, and the other critical issue, and I think it's relevant here since we're in the realm of politics, we need to appreciate that there's one other key trend taking place today. Customers are being increasingly empowered through these new technologies to make decisions about their own specific energy services. Okay? So customer engagement 
is now a really important issue. If you speak to utility executives, I'll tell you, one thing that they're very concerned about, very excited about, is customer engagement. You speak to the, the high-tech community in the West Coast, we'd say in Boston too, of course, um, this is really front of mind. Because the, with these new technologies, we can have a much more bespoke set of uh, energy services delivered. And again, that's going to add value. That's going to drive our economy forward. It's going to create value, um, not just in supporting things like decarbonization, but in the broader sense of driving innovation and really helping the United States remain at the forefront of, uh, of, uh, of the energy space. That's all very exciting, but I don't want to be naive or Pollyannish about this. We have some challenges that have to be overcome that are very relevant to this community here in, in DCs, for example, um, to really take advantage of these trends. So the first is that today's power markets and energy markets broadly are not necessarily well set up for these trends. We need to really step back from these debates and be more thoughtful about where we want to go into the future this is not a retrospective activity. We need to be more prospective, and we need to put in place market frameworks that are going to make sense to take advantage of these, uh, these technologies for our broader economy. We need to think very carefully at the state level, I would add, about the institutional issues that matter. So electricity, specifically, is, of course, uh, doesn't uh, respect the boundaries of, of, our, of our states and so on. And I think we need to be more thoughtful about how we integrate uh, state-level policy with the broader goals of taking advantage of these uh, these trends. And then the final point is that we shouldn't be naive to the technology needs that still exist. So we've made a lot of progress, but there's still a, a major opportunity, a major need for the development of a range of enabling technologies, further enabling technologies. And uh, I'm sure we're going to hear about more, more of that uh, in a moment. I won't delve into it, but uh, you know, we at MIT certainly are kind of abreast of this, we feel, and are working very hard to, to enable that across the spectrum as well. Next up was Eric Rolfing, Acting Director of RPE, the Advanced Research Projects Agency Energy. I represent RPE, and so when uh, I'm asked to give perspectives, I have kind of a unique view of the world uh, because I'm like the kid in the candy store, the geeky scientist kid in the candy store. I see every cool energy technology idea that there is. And our role is exactly, in the segue from Frank, is to create the enabling technology of the future. So we are the DARPA equivalent for energy. We're supposed to be very forward-looking, very prospective, and asking what are the key technologies that will enable the grid of the future, will enable the transportation system of the future, will enable the complete integration of digital and energy technologies. And so we have literally, you know, everything under the sun, also literally under the sun, um, uh, from, uh, you know, from plasma physics for better fusion energy to plant biology for, for uh, fuels, uh, to window coatings for single-pane windows. I mean, it's, it's a huge spectrum. So when asked to survey the landscape, I usually try to pick a few things here and there. And I could go with the grid, but I'm going to actually go with transportation instead, just to complement kind of things you said. So obviously, transportation is changing dynamically. Electrification is coming. It's here. It's upon us. But also mobility. Mobility is a service. The digitization of mobility is here. And so we have we have a couple of programs, one of which I wear another hat as a program director on, and one called Nextcar, which we just launched. And Nextcar is all about connected and automated vehicles. So that's a technology that's coming. Everybody knows it's coming. It's being driven primarily at this point by issues associated with safety. 
we saw the opportunity to say, look, in an era, in, a, in an environment where you have cars that are completely connected and sharing information <clears throat> with each other and with the infrastructure, there's a huge opportunity for energy savings. And, and it, it, you don't need a new powertrain. All you need to do is use the information that's coming to the vehicle to better optimize the vehicle controller and the powertrain controller. Imagine if your vehicle knows exactly where you're going, knows the grade that's coming up, knows the traffic conditions, knows the status of the lights. We think you can get a 20% efficiency improvement in vehicle oh, yeah. economy without doing anything except changing software. Uh, which, you know, that to me is an example of the kind of programs that RPE looks at. Mm. Looks at that niche where, you know, people are thinking about it one way, but we see the technology empowering an energy mission, which is our mission uh, to do that. Another area keeping in transportation where we're looking at is biofuels. And right now, mm. petroleum is very inexpensive. Uh, biofuels are not economically viable. But we're looking again into 10, 20, 30 years down the road and asking, if we have a viable biofuels uh, enterprise in this country, uh, how will we do that? How will we, how will we address the challenge of food versus fuel? Um, and so we have a couple of programs in that area. Uh, one is called Terra. We, we spend a lot of time thinking of clever acronyms. You know, I don't want to tell you how much time. <laughs> Terra is, is, is addressing the question that if you want a significant biofuel or bioproduct economy, you have to accelerate the rate of breeding gain in biofuel crop mm -hmm. because we've done that for food crops. You know, uh, corn is an amazing crop, but 100 years ago it was this squarny little thing called maize and it what, didn't feed anybody. So what, what should we do for crops? And this program is focused on energy sorghum, which is a, an excellent biofuel uh, precursor, and it grows in uh, lands that aren't so useful for food crops. But what we've done there is taken a merger of robotics, of sensing, big data analytics to say, okay, phenotyping for plant breeders is typically, you have a bunch of germplasm, you plant a bunch of seeds, you go out in the field and somebody measures how high it is or whatever. We're using robots, we're using sensor technology, we're using big data analytics to combine it with the genomics to hopefully rapidly accelerate breeding for uh, biofuels crops and energy sorghum using lands that are less than optimal for food. So those are kind of two examples of the many examples of the kind of things we do at RPE. You know, we, we are the DARPA for energy. We're, we're constantly looking for those new niches uh, of key enabling technologies. Uh, obviously, in grid, one of the big enablers is storage. We've had a, a long track record in, in funding storage projects. And some of those technologies are now gone, gone out of the lab into the field where they're actually making an impact. So. Um, with that, I'll, I think I'll pass the torch. Back to Scientific American's Marietta Cristina. I'd love to turn next. So, you know, I, I was interested to hear about, you know, uses of, of land that's not optimal and looking for niches and key enablers. I think one of the things, Rosemary, that we, we talked about a lot is looking for opportunities and things that, that otherwise might be getting overlooked. And I, I would love you to speak to that if you would. Yeah, so we have, uh, in the United States, we spend about $160 billion a year on R&D. And um, you know, so over the last seven years, we've spent about a trillion dollars with about 250,000 inventions that are mm -hmm. sitting on the shelf that have more than 13 years of patent life, and only 0.5 to 1% of those get out a year. 0.5 to 0.5 to 0.7% of the inventions um, uh, for, that are federally funded get out a year. So what does that mean, get out? That they're actually commercialized. They're 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 found and then they're commercialized. 
So some of the, the challenges that we have are, first of all, finding these inventions. So I just mentioned the ones that are patented, so you can find them for, through the USPTO, but they're about five times to 10 times the amount that are not patented that are not disclosed. So these, so the, the energy efficiencies and tools of the future could be sitting there on the shelf, uh, either patented or not. And, and so the, um, the finding is one thing. Then uh, the second thing is assessing the invention once you find it. Um, the NASA portfolio is probably one of the uh, best, one of the, one of the best portfolios we've reviewed in, in terms of energy. Uh, has a great number of energy saving inventions because everything that goes to space has to be energy efficient. And um, you know, assessing those inventions are it's very complicated because they're they're re they're written in such technical terms. And I'm I'm an engineer, and I I think that I could understand what these things say. <laughs> Read it a few times, and it's very difficult to to ascertain what this invention does. And there are lots of applications for it. So assessing the invention, finding it first, and then assessing it second. And then, um, so you find something that's really a great invention, then, then you need to lift it out. So licensing then is the next uh, challenge. 70% um, of licensing agreements uh, fall through you know, in the negotiation process because of the disconnect between the person who wants to uh, license the invention and the licensee. So how do you make inventions that are uh, licensable, licensing agreements, terms that will work for everybody? I mean, it's sunk costs, right? Because we taxpayers have paid for it already. So the, the licensing is, is the next step. And then the question becomes post-licensing. Mm -hmm. So what we've observed, because we've, uh, we've, we have about 170,000 inventions we work with in my company. Um, and when we, what we've observed and when we've gotten the licensing to going, we've got the license agreement closed, closed the deal, then the question becomes, um, can they transfer what they said they were going to transfer out? So about 50% of the time, half of the invention they can't find um, meaning, like if it's a software, hardware, mechanical, electrical, uh, communication stack, there's a piece missing. The software, for example, is always a piece that's hard to find. So um, the, the next, uh, the future of energy could be sitting on our shelf, and I bet you it is. And it's probably been created multiple times, actually. <laughs> and and that's, that becomes another issue when it come to, comes to even just the publication, even pre-invention. Pre you know, if, if something doesn't work, we don't publish about this. You know, we don't like to publish things that don't work. But if we publish things that didn't work, then we know they don't work. <laughs> let's not do that again. Or let's do it a different way. So, so um, we have an in incredible amount of opportunity in terms of what we have. If you, if you extrapolate what I was just mentioning, the 250,000 inventions times 5 or times 10, 2.5 million inventions sitting on the shelf, uh, sunk cost about $3 trillion worth of IP sitting on the shelf um, that we could ha have a significant opportunity to mine. So, um, you know, what, what I think our, our big opportunity is in the United States is to uh, significantly change the way we, we um, harness our intellectual property. So when we give out this $160 billion a year to different organizations, you know, universities, hospitals, uh, research institutes across the U.S., we govern it properly. So the inventions become disclosed and we have a clearinghouse for all the inventions. And we have a systematic approach to harmonizing the data around the inventions so that you can actually mine it, um, characterizing it, and then um, making it searchable so that you only have to go to one, one place. So if you're, if you're not familiar with this scenario, you know, if I like your inventions, and I like your inventions and yours, I have to go to three separate databases, then I have to talk to three separate people, and then you have to talk to the inventors, and you know, there's it's a Herculean effort to, to pull together 
the inventions into one one place. Mm. Um, there are snippets of solutions out there right now, but um, a policy change would be required in order to uh, actually harmonize. It's very simple: harmonize the data, put it in one database, create a clearinghouse, and also tell people how they can get the get the invention. So uh, I'll use a, a very um, basic scenario. You know, if you're if you're a five billion dollar company and, and you're you know a startup with no money, um, and I have a packet of Oreos, <laughs> I'm gonna one of you guys are gonna get the Oreos. Now, if you get to the store and get the Oreos, it's gonna cost three dollars, right? But for you, it's, the Oreos are gonna cost five million dollars, and for you, I'm gonna give you the Oreos for free. But that's that's currently the way licensing works. It's a, it's an art. And they de it depends on who it is that's coming to get the, the invention. And from my perspective, since it's some cost that the taxpayers we have all paid for, um, it should be used to commercialize and create knowledge-based jobs and, and uh, create brand new markets in the United States. Well, I just wanted to follow up on Rosemary's comments, uh, and this is going to be a shill for RPE, so just, you know, I'm here, I'm here for a little bit. Uh, so, you know... In terms of getting most bang for the buck from federal R&D, I think RB has a unique construct for doing that. Mm -hmm. So yes, we provide uh, funding for research and that the, the research is key. It's high risk research, so a lot of it will fail. We recognize that. But a part of our charter is also to find a pathway for that research, not to just produce publications, not just to produce patents, but to get into the real world. And so we have a technology to market activity, which is deeply embedded and ingrained in all of our projects from day one. And so our program directors uh, work closely with technology to market advisors, all of whom are hired into the agency because they're passionate about energy technology. They want to change the world. They're working with the researchers and saying, look, this technology is awesome. You're going to do this research. If it's successful, I don't really care if you publish a paper. Although I will, I will take you up on your comment. Publishing failure is an important thing because we yes. have a lot of failures, and mm -hmm. it is important to know that. Yeah. And so we have a repository of failures, <laughs> so we know what failed. So hopefully, we'll remember what not to fund again. Um, but it, it's it's very insightful, I think, especially to work with academics. And so every project has a technology to market plan. Every project has some plan that's going to help them all at every step in the project. And so I think it's worth giving a concrete example. So we, we had a project started in 2012 in Harvard, uh, Joanna Eisenberg's group, an amazing project on slippery coatings. So basically they took a nanostructured porous material, uh, impregnated that with a slippery fluid, and that made essentially a liquid-liquid interface that fluids slide right across. We went into that project and the first thing we did is say, let's do a techno-economic study to figure out what the appropriate markets are that could have the biggest impact because there are a myriad of things you mm -hmm. could apply this to. And so through that process, they decided that, believe it or not, refrigeration was an early first market that they could, they could attack. Uh, that's basically saving energy and cost in not having to defrost commercial freezers as much. It may not sound like mm -hmm. the coolest application, mm -hmm. But, sorry for the pun, <laughs> intended. it's a really cool application. Um, so that was a good example of helping them find what the right path initially to market might be. Subsequently, they spun out a company called Slips, and now they're actually moving toward what could be a much more impactful application, which is fouling free slippery coatings for, for shipping, right? Mm -hmm. And that mm -hmm. could have a huge energy impact. So that's an example, and if you, you want more information, there's a video on our website where Joanna talks about exactly how that worked. And, and we have a lot of examples like that. And I think, you know, we, we have, you know, it is incumbent upon 
an agency like RPE to make sure that the yield coming out of our research is as high as possible. And I, I think we're doing that um, in a very active way, a very hands-on way, providing the resources, the expertise, the advice, and ultimately the matching with the appropriate investors uh, for our project. So just wanted to follow up with that. Yeah, so I, I think that's a, that's a great example. So I have about, I, we probably could go back and forth with examples <laughs> each way, but I won't mention the agency. Uh, this this particular agency had a, a kite, you know, so it's a, imagine a kite that's like a, a thin um, strip of, of fabric, right? And it's about 200 feet of fabric. It has piezoelectric uh, components into, in it. It generates 10x the amount of energy that a windmill does, and it's about 100 times less costly. Um, the maintenance is practically nil compared to a windmill. The kite works on, um, there's a, a motherboard at the bottom uh, and a bunch of sensors, optimizes the positioning of the kite with two guide wires. So you're generating tons of energy. You can capture the energy much more efficiently. Um, the kite can be deployed for uh, when you're hiking and you're camping, and so for, for com consumer purposes or for commercial purposes, you, you, could, you could transport it. You can't transport a windmill. Transport it to a disaster relief site and generate energy. So this, this particular invention has been around for eight years. We just put out three companies on it last year. Um, it's fantastic, change the world, change invention, simple, right? But uh, again, uh, it was not published on any website. So um, these are examples of this, these hidden treasures that we have um, in the United States that, that we could um, embrace and commercialize. The missing piece for people who maybe aren't specialists here is what piezoelectric does. It basically um, just converts uh, you know, mechanical energy to electric yes, energy yeah, and, and yeah. vice versa. Yeah. So I, I just want to add um, one, one final point to this particular thread in the discussion that I think is really relevant again to the, to the audience here today. So first, so I, I, uh, one of my hats at MIT is I, uh, I'm on the faculty at the Sloan School of Business and I teach a class on energy venturing. Uh, energy is quite energy is a tough business. Ultimately, it's a commodity, and um, it's difficult to capture value. It's difficult to grow those businesses. And because of that, it's really important that people, for example, in this town, understand the criticality of having an end-to-end -end value chain in supporting the development of new energy technologies. Uh, and and let me just kind of emphasize three in a simplistic sense three horizons of support that are really required, each of which, I should add, the federal government has a very important role to play in. So first, very clearly, there's basic science and basic research. And you know, the United States has built its economy on the back of us being leaders, being the leader in developing these technologies at the basic science level. I myself came to this country to go to university, uh, to attend MIT. I have many colleagues, just like me, who become Americans. Uh, who stay here, who want to add value, and that is a unique selling point. And a lot of that is driven by support from the federal government for basic science and engineering. Now, from that filters the type of fantastic work that you then see at agencies like RPE. So good ideas that are coming from the bench, but that need some support in order to really begin to match them with the markets. And that's not an easy thing, ultimately, because just like this fluid, uh, or just like the Harvard invention, uh, a lot of the basic science has a kind of multiplicity of applications. And it needs you need some time to really understand where that's going to go and to build the relationships mm -hmm. and so on yeah. um, that are going to get it to the market. 
And then finally, and this is a real challenge, I think, for energy. So energy is a big money business at the end of the day. And to really get scale and to be, to be able to, uh, to win, to really have transformative impact, you need to be able to finance your technologies at scale. And the United States, with the Loan Program Office at the Department of Energy, as an example, have been very thoughtful over the years in providing just a little bit of capital to support technologies that are nearly there, but that need that scale and that you cannot get the commercial bankability for. Uh, we have solar photovoltaics today at scale being the absolute cheapest source of generation in many parts of this country. Okay? Utility executives will tell you that. Uh, that was made possible, and I'm dead serious, five or six years ago, through the loan program office supporting just three or four programs. And they made money on them, ultimately. It was a good return for the taxpayer as well. And I really think that that's important to appreciate. There are going to be some challenges in this kind of transition, but people need to understand we need to bring all of the... Uh, the instruments that the government can do in a kind of integrated sense to this uh, to this challenge and to support that. Because from that, you're going to have some really tremendous outcomes. Next, audience members got to ask their questions. So uh, Nick Campbell, I'm an executive editor and uh, EVP at Nature Research. So, I mean, <clears throat> all the stuff you guys are talking about is really exciting me because I'm a natural scientist by training and I uh, the technology sounds fantastic. There's clearly... Uh, you know, unrealized huge potential we can make. We're all talking about you know increasing efficiency and, and making a huge impact. So I'm, I'm fascinated about that. But but one issue we haven't really talked about is the the, the social impact and, and and how important social science is to this. And so mm. you know one of the one of the key uh, election uh, issues uh, in the recent presidential election was around was energy focused and it wasn't about what the, the key issue wasn't about getting new technologies or making more money for America or whatever it was essentially around jobs in in a, in a, in a legacy industry and so I'm interested to know you know whether enough focus whether the panel can, can you know comment on whether enough focus is being given to social science implications and, and engaging with those solutions as well the implications of, of the solutions you guys are talking about for society Anybody want to have a go? Uh, I'll, I'll take a, a whack at it, but I might <laughs> diverge a little bit. Um, so, uh, you know, obviously one of the keys to any new technology is adoption. And the key to that is who is going to adopt the technology and how will it be adopted. And in RPE, we have a range of programs that in some cases the adoption will need to happen in the power industry. Uh, but in other cases, it's directed at the consumer. And so an example of that is a, is a program that I manage called Transnet, where we're, we're trying to use the information that all of us have in these devices uh, to optimize the energy efficiency of an urban multimodal transportation system. And obviously, when you're talking about influencing travelers' behavior, you have to understand the social and behavioral sciences. What, what motivates people to make route choices, to make mode choices, and how can we influence that? So we, we look at that program as, you know, probably our, our, our largest foray into the behavioral sciences. And it's about adoption by a consumer of a new technology in an incredibly competitive marketplace. So, you know, we all use Google Maps now. Our, our phones are really smart and we, we can't get anywhere without them, right? You know, we can't navigate. We're hopeless without them. So, so the question is, how can you embed energy into that kind of technology? This is another example of a technology that's already here. How can we embed energy into that kind of optimization system? And, 
And that's where, you know, behavioral science is key to understand what people will adopt, why they will do it, how you can incentivize them. Not exactly answered your question, because that's a policy question and we're a technology agency. Well, I think there's an interesting point, but um, a lot of people who are uh, innately interested or involved in basic research and technology see growth opportunities. But many people hear these things and, and worry about the future. And I think we, you know, we, do, we do share an obligation to, to figure out how best to adapt these technologies to suit society. Completely, completely agree with the point. And I think of one of the things this panel is raising is how do we best do that collaboratively and, and with the right kinds of frameworks. You know, for instance, Frank, you were just talking a little while ago about um, uh, customer engagement, and certainly that also means consumer engagement with these technologies. I, can I just make one point? Uh, along those lines, I, yeah. I think it's a great question. It's actually probably the most important question in many respects, because, you know, there's lots of technology, most of it on the shelf, uh, by the way, uh, out there. The question is, how is that kind of going to uh, diffuse into the market and so on? Um, I think one thing that uh, in, in the kind of the broader debate or discussion about energy today, there's a, you know, there's this kind of bimodal, it's this way or that way. And I think we really have to get over that particular, we have to bridge between, between these two kind of futures because the reality is that the energy system we have uh, is very different in different parts of, the, in different parts of this country and uh, we should embrace that. And, um, you know, we should appreciate the fact that we have different types of resources today that we're using. But as we look to the future in terms of kind of our innovation pathways, we should also understand that. And one thing that I tend to um, uh, advocate for is that when we think about changing the energy system, we really should focus on kind of having innovation at a regional level. So understanding the nature of individual regions what makes sense within that context, what is possible, and then supporting that. So that really calls for an all of the above, if you wish, kind of agenda. Um, and by the way, that is, that's the key to success anyway. You need to have that all of the above kind of agenda. And I think we failed actually to manage to get there. I think if we were able to, at a federal level, have a more coherent conversation about how we, at a regionally resolved level, think about supporting energy innovation, then I think you could build a, a coalition that perhaps is a little bit more aligned than, than we have today. Uh, yeah, I think um, <clears throat> the thing that, that, that what worries me, one of the things that worries me about the transformation that, that Frank has talked about is, is potential backlash. If the society is not prepared to uh, embrace the technology, and a perfect example is what's happening in the coal industry. Yeah. Uh, all these uh, coal workers are put out of jobs because, basically, because of natural gas. But um, they've de devoted their lives, their parents devoted their lives, and so on to, to coal mining. They don't, they're not really prepared to move on. And so, <clears throat> we need to make sure that we take care of that and, and give them uh, a, a ladder out of that sort of spiral that they've found themselves in. And that, if we don't do that, then we're going to have backlash and we're going to be putting ourselves backwards like we're seeing. It seems like um, maybe maybe one lesson at least I'm taking from this conversation is um, any new technology that's, that's planned to be adapted should come along with a conversation with various stakeholders about who might be affected and how do we set up the right sorts of frameworks right. for transitions if needed, ongoing education and, you know, to help enable a more inclusive economy. Um, other questions? I see one. In the back. Jack Lashover, and I'm with Nature Research. And uh, 
my question is more a uh, consumer question, I guess, a, a public perception. It seems like so much of what we're talking about here is ultimately driven by public opinion and uh, consumer demand. And I think one of the great challenges uh, that we all know about is, is the fact that you know there are a great number of individuals who uh, don't really think about decarbonization, right? When they go to buy a car, they're thinking about you know how much does it cost, and does you know and what is the quality, and they don't go that extra step. And so you know if there is a, a I don't know the statistic, but if half of the population does not believe that uh, that man has anything to do with you know climate change, um, ultimately, don't we have to change the perception of the public that this is important? And what part does um, communications and change and changing? Um, you know, public opinion about this play because that drives uh, commercial demand. It, it controls, you know, uh, how many scientists that we have in Congress, um, and are there things that we can do to change public perception and opinion? I, I think the key is to not worry about that climate issue. That is not going to solve that problem. I think that's a it's kind of a religious issue, and uh, from my point of view, that's a private issue. What we need to do, and where we're approaching, is a point where these technologies are desirable for all of the reasons that people desire shiny phones and you know convenience, value add, lifestyle lifestyle benefits, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. In the commercial space, the cost effective solution, competitiveness at the federal level, energy security and national security. And uh, we're approaching that space, actually. That is the key. And I think in terms of our objectives and trying to support that, we ought to focus on uh, moving the, you know, these technologies forward with a view to delivering on those features. You're not going to win this battle if you're just kind of focused on the, the, the climate benefits. That's my honest opinion. I, I would second that opinion. I, I mean, that. You, you have to compete economically, and that, that's what's going to drive this. I mean, when you plug in your your cell phone to charge overnight, you don't know where the electrons came from. They Correct. come from wind, or they come solar, <laughs> yeah. or a natural gas. But you don't care. Yeah. Uh, so you don't have to be convinced one way or the other in a, a quasi-religious or ideological framework. You want cheap electricity, and that's what we have to provide. And and uh, so we have to compete economically for sure. Is there is there any with with the last thirty seconds that we have? If there's one thing you could tell people in the audience that they could do to be supportive of a better energy future, is there, is there a piece of advice you'd like to share? Be informed. Uh, mm -hmm. Understand the state of technology, mm -hmm. what's new in technology, uh, get briefings, uh, come up to speed, take advantage of uh, scientists and engineers to talk to in your districts or in your states, uh, understand the lay of the land and what's new in technology. and. Uh, that, that you know, stay informed is probably one of the biggest keys. That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where you can read the story by Clara Moskowitz about how neutrons may lead a second secret life as dark matter. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. Thank you.